And hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. If things in this country had been different, if, say, we didn't have such a messed up history of racial injustice, you could imagine that Bob Moses might have lived out a quiet life as an intellectual and academic. But, of course, the U.S. does have its civil rights problem, to put it mildly. And it was coming to a head in 1960 when Bob Moses was 25. As an African-American, he knew racism firsthand, and he couldn't just stand by as other young people streamed south to stage sit-ins, work for desegregation, and dismantle the remnants of Jim Crow. So he left his teaching position in New York and joined the movement. He wound up in Mississippi, helping to lead the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a.k.a. SNCC. His primary mission was to organize voting among black sharecroppers. And... As we all know, the reaction from the white authorities was fast and furious. Bob and his fellow volunteers were threatened, beaten, jailed, and shot at, and in some cases murdered. Bob himself was nearly killed when the car he was riding in with some co-workers was machine-gunned. The driver was hit, and Bob had to grab the wheel to keep the car from crashing. Bob Moses wrote about that in his book Radical Equations, though he does not play up the drama and the individual acts of bravery. He's a lot more interested in what was accomplished by the collective action of a lot of unheralded ordinary people working together to move the entire country forward. Well, that chapter of the Civil Rights Movement ran its course, and since then, Bob Moses has shifted his efforts to another front in the struggle, as he sees it, the battle for educational opportunity. For the last 30 years, he's been working on something called the Algebra Project, which he founded in 1982. It's an attempt to bring high-quality math instruction to educationally disadvantaged kids in the public schools. Bob says that a quality public school education is, or should be, a constitutional right, and he sees math as a key to academic and economic equality. Bob Moses uh, happened to visit our area just this past week to deliver the keynote speech at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Convocation in Santa Cruz, And that gave me a chance to sit down and talk with him about his life as an activist, past and present. Stay tuned. Bob, in your book, Radical Equations, I particularly like this uh, passage. There is a character called Bob Moses in many of the history books that discuss Mississippi's civil rights movement in the 1960s. I read about him. I sympathize with him. I am confused by him, and I want to understand him better. Yeah, so people who write history tell stories, and they're not actually making up a character. It's not fiction. But on the other hand, they are creating a person. They they are imagining a person. And so there's a character that's in the history books now that has been imagined many times over, Yeah, named Bob Moses. What is that character like? in contrast to the person you know from the inside? Um, They imagine someone heroic. Um, They imagine someone who somehow is magnetic, right? They imagine someone who has um, a lot of courage, right? But to be truthful, I try not to read a lot about him. And the problem is not imagining myself to be him, 
Right. Now, living with myself, not with that character. Right. Well, I've been reading about him in his own words in the aforementioned book, Radical Equations. And it describes you, Bob Moses, from the point at which you entered the civil rights movement and decided to go down to Mississippi and start organizing. And you tell the story of how you were beaten in the street at one point, how people you worked with were murdered and brutally treated by the Klan and by other whites at that time, and you don't make a big deal of it. But I have to say, reading it, I too fell into seeing you as a very brave person, a person who on the one hand was a quiet, very intellectual guy, but who stayed in Mississippi even after you were beaten, even after colleagues were shot and killed. Yeah, so I, I, I think of myself as a part of a really small group of people who had come to the conclusion that to live in the country, we had to work to change it. So for a very short period of time, right, we're talking 1960-65, right, a, a kind of five-year period between the time when Kennedy is elected in 61 and then murdered in 63 and Johnson takes over. In, in that period of time, we sort of lived 24-7 with the idea that, well, the country need, has to change if we are going to feel comfortable living in it. But we were doing that in uh, a way in which was ahistorical in some sense. I mean, there was no sense that you're moving history, right? Mm. And, you know, guerrilla warfare is not that much different from war in the sense that there's a lot of downtime. I mean, you're not in danger all the time. And the, the one of the the real problems is understanding when you are in danger and not acting like you're in danger when you're not, right? But we, we learned that, or I learned that, from watching Amzi Moore, C.C. Bryant, E.W. Steptoe, from the people who were actually fish in that water, right, who lived in that water and knew it from the time they were knee-high and mm -hmm. had learned not only how to live in it, but how to thrive in it, in the sense that they were going to thrive being in struggle against that, right? So we, I learned the, the rudiments of living this life of struggle. Did you at some point, though, reckon with the fact that you might lose your life in the process? Yeah, we had to do that. How did you do that? How did you make that decision? Well, well, that decision, I think, was made when Herbert Lee was murdered, right? And so um, Dr. Anderson, who had sewn me up after I had gotten beaten, um, called me and said, a body has turned up in Liberty at the Cotton Gin, and they want me to go down and look at it. And so, sure enough, it was Herbert Lee who had been murdered, and... So right then and there, you know, murder and the possibility of being murdered, you know, it's precipitating out of the work that you're doing. And he was an NAACP leader in that area of Mississippi. Right. So Steptoe was the head of the NAACP and the sheriffs had come. So you're looking in the period after World War II and then after the Supreme Court decision about 
education. Brown versus Board of Education. Brown, yes. And so you're looking at the effort of the Mississippi uh, authorities from the governor on down to wipe out the NAACP leadership, right? And so you're looking at systematic murder. I mean, Amzi said, well, it's it's the shooting, which is the lynching, right? So, but in Steptoe's case, they came and raided his NACP meeting, took the books, and then started putting pressure on all the members. So the chapter had been disbanded, but Steptoe was still operating, and he didn't have any transportation, and so uh, Herbert Lee was the person who was driving us all around. Mm. And his wife actually said to you that it was your fault because you were the one who was part of the organizing effort. Yeah, no, she had, she had seven kids. I think the oldest was a young teenager. I mean, you know, it was devastating. Yeah, but but for you that meant, obviously, it could happen to you too. Well, that's the thing. I think the I think now, looking back, and this was not a concept that we articulated during that time, we were doing what I think of now as an earned insurgency. And the first thing was earning the right among the farmers and the sharecroppers. Um, Why should they do what we were urging them to do, right? Because they were risking everything, right? And so if we weren't ready to risk the same thing, but we we had to show them that we were ready to do that also, risked what they were risking, right? So that was just part of the job. Hmm. It's hard not to elevate that to heroic stature when I hear about it. I'm talking personally. When I hear about someone who could just as easily go home to New York, in your case. But it's not New York. It's the whole country. So for me, you know, I learned about it gradually, Right as I hit high school, left Harlem, went down to Stuyvesant. I mean, I ended up in Stuyvesant throwing something at my teacher, and he threw something at me. This is Stuyvesant High School, you know, prep school. He didn't think I belonged in that class, right? And, you know, I look back on it now. I did not think that I should tell my parents and that they should come down to the school and raise hell about this. You know, it was like, this is my battle with my teacher, Mm. right? Um, And then in college, right, with the fraternities, right? And so it, it came clearer and clearer to me as I'm moving through the institutions in the, in the dominant, right, part of the society that, um, there's a problem here, and somehow the root of this problem, even though it's a national problem, there's something to, about this problem that can be hit down in South. And when I saw the sitting kids, right, and watched their faces in, in the pictures in the Times, that's what struck me, right, mm. that these people are actually attacking my problem. Let's talk about your education. I did want to get into that. So you grew up in Harlem. You ended up at Stuyvesant High School, a famous school where many well-known people have gone. I think it's famous for its math and sciences. Math and science, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were saying at that time you were one of the only black students? Just a few. Just a few. Yeah. Actually, Al Poussant and I graduated together. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Right. Yeah. 
and you're saying that at least this one teacher was hostile? Yeah. Well, and I found that as I went through. You'd find one hostile person, but you also found another person who was just just the exact opposite, right? So um, Schindelheim, who was the coach of the basketball team and the chemistry professor, you know, was my big champion mm-hmm. going through, right? Mm. Dr. Eifert, who was the shop teacher, was my nemesis, right? Mm. Um, and the same thing in college, right? So I had an English professor, you know, who thought I did not belong in that. I was not college material. He, he asked me, well, what are you doing in your other classes? And I told him my marks. He said, well, how can you get those grades? You can't write, you know? <laughs> and it went to the dean, mm. right? And the dean said, well, look, you give him whatever he gets on his final exam. Because I was out of there if I flunked the course. You know, I had really? a scholarship, ah. flunk one course, and you're out. So it's been that way all the way through, you know. And you say it And America's like that, you know. But the problem is America as a country doesn't see its dark side. It, it's not willing, you know. It would be much better off if it could face its dark side, right, and acknowledge it and work its way through it, right? Before we leave that stage of your life behind, you have to tell me about this incident where you threw something at the teacher. <laughs> yeah, well, so what happened, it was interesting. Um, Stuyvesant, you know, you take your test to go in, but they also looked at, I guess, people who did certain things on that test. And so they put me in a class with the kids who were the highest, right? And I had a homeroom teacher, Mr. Blue, who was really a chemistry teacher, just as sweet as he could be, right? And then at the end of that year, he turned us over to our next homeroom teacher. It was going to be our homeroom teacher for 11th and 12th grade. He came in. He he had never seen us. He started right in on me. I'm the only black kid in the class, right? But there was just one other kid in the class who stood up for me. And so on. he didn't say anything. But on the way out, he said, he's a shit, you know, talking about the teacher, Mr. Eifert. But all the rest of the kids, it was like, you know, nothing extraordinary had happened. Um, and so it deteriorated from then on, right? <laughs> and one day I was sitting there talking. He threw something at me. I threw something back at him, <laughs> you know. And that he tried to blackball me. He when uh, time to go to college, you know. But Schindelheim was in my corner. Uh, but the tossing of something at the teacher didn't get you expelled. No, no, no. Well, I don't think he started it. So, what did you imagine you would do with your life at that point? What were you interested in? I wanted to play basketball, so I made sure I went to a school that was small enough so I could make the team, right? And all through high school, I was playing basketball at the Y, and I played on the team in my senior year, and we actually beat Commerce, which was, you know, the black school in 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 New York, right? Um, I remember the, the coach came up to me. He was afraid of DeFerreris because uh, he scored over 30 points a game. And I said, that's all right, coach. I can handle him because we played together on the Harlem Y basketball team. Right? I should say you're not tall either. Right, no. But I knew his every move, right? And so we stopped him cold and we won, right? Wow. We were the Manhattan champions. They wow. put our picture on the 
the post, right? The UN team, right? There's a black guy, a Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Italian, right? So anyway, I wanted to play basketball in college, and I also wanted to go to a college that was a good college. Um, and then in college, I got fascinated because the philosophy professor, Blythe, was writing a logic textbook. And we got the material once a week. And it dawned on me that people write books, right? It was the first, you know, connecting a person to a book that he's actually writing, right? And I got really, I was his star logic student, right? And I got interested in philosophy. So I did philosophy, and my grandmother asked me, what, what are you going to do with <laughs> philosophy? You can't do nothing. So, But I was just interested in doing what I was interested in, uh -huh. right, basically, and then um, pursue philosophy at Harvard, right? Just went on trying to figure out some things, right? And what's interesting is that I don't think I would have been prepared to do the little piece of math that we've been doing with the algebra project if I had majored in math instead, because majoring in philosophy, it, it taught you to look at what everyone else takes for granted and try and unpack it, right? And so if you take that attitude about the elementary concepts of algebra, right, so there's this number, negative three. What's going on mm. with that number? And how do you unpack it once you understand what's going on with it so kids can actually access it? That way of thinking I learned in philosophy, right? And was able then later to try to use it, right, to actually do something practical with it. Yeah, I was wondering whether you had a strong math background at that point, but you're saying philosophy was your real love academically. And at Harvard in the 1950s, philosophy also meant philosophy of science and philosophy of language. And Quine, who was Willard Van Omen, Quine was the star of Harvard's philosophy department. So he was both a mathematical logician so he was giving courses in the math department on mathematical logic for graduate students. But his main focus was looking at the argument about what's the evidence for mathematics? Is it any different than the evidence for theoretical physics? Right? And so he came out with what became one of the central components of the pedagogy of the algebra project, which is he said, well, look, Elementary arithmetic, elementary set theory, elementary logic get off the ground by what he called the regimentation of ordinary discourse. You take the languages that people speak and you, so to speak, straightjacket them. And you get a language that nobody speaks, but it's the language that undergirds all of the symbolic representations in math and science, right? And so... Well, that's an insight, right? Because um, part of what people say is, well, the kids have to read in order to do the math. Mm. So it turns out, yes, but they really don't have to read to the level of sophistication that the algebra, the traditional algebra texts are talking about. What you have to do is get them to produce some language which is their own language. That is, they can produce their street language. Everybody has a language, right, that gets them around the streets. So 
if you can get them to produce that language, then you can move them through the process of producing this other language. I wouldn't have gotten that mm-hmm. majoring in math. I should uh, <clears throat> just uh, explain that you know W. V. O. Quine, uh, the philosopher you're, you're talking about, who you actually studied with when yeah, you went to Harvard. W. V. O. W. V. O. Was really one of the most prominent American philosophers for much of the 20th century. Major, major figure. And one of the ideas that he contributed was the idea that um, math was really founded in normal, everyday language, in a way. Yes, right. So Quine's point uh, about language and science and math is that what it gets off the ground from common sense in some sense, right? right? And then you're working with this common sense, right, at the ground zero level, and then, you know, you're working all the way up and you get something which is, you know, unintelligible to most people, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. start, right, from the common sense level of the language, right? That's an important notion because there are those who had said or continue to say that math really is its own language, that it has nothing to do with natural language at right. all. yeah, And right. that you have to master this completely separate right. language and this separate way of thinking. Whereas you're saying you can ground math in more accessible... Actually, you can ground it in everyday experiences, right? right? And that's what's proven key to the idea that the kids who are at the bottom, this is what the algebra project is trying to push now, They have to make a commitment, but our job has been, well, look, we're working on what to teach and how to teach it. So if you're willing to grapple with it, we know that you can learn it. Hmm. I want to talk more about the Algebra Project um, a little further on in our conversation. Of course, this is the program that you now run, that you founded in 1982, that uh, attempts to bring better math education to kids who might not otherwise have access to it and and how that may open up all kinds of opportunities. But back to your civil rights period. We last left you in Mississippi helping to organize voter registration drives as one of the leaders of SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, at some point, you had a, something of a falling out with the, the, the leadership of SNCC, is that right? And, and you, you stopped working with them? I wouldn't put it that I had a falling out. Uh-huh. SNCC had a falling out with SNCC. itself. <laughs> okay, right. right. SNCC, um, after the summer project, SNCC went through a really very soul-searching effort to try to figure out, well, who are we? What are we doing? Right? And how do we do it? What came out of that was not something that I felt that I could move forward with, which was sort of the idea that we need to centralize. We need to have more authority about what happens. Um, and we need to have more control about, you know, the field secretaries. But the problem is you don't have any money. Mm. You're not paying anybody. Mm. Their lives are at risk. So how are you going to do that? What What is going to allow them, right, to say, do what you say, do, you're not paying them, and what they're doing is still life-threatening, right? So it wasn't real, right? Hmm. They also dropped the word nonviolent from their name. Later. Oh, that was later. Yeah, later. That wasn't part of that discussion. That You're dealing with the Meredith March, right, when in 66, 
after John Lewis has been voted out and uh, Stokely Carmichael is now chair of SNCC, and then Meredith has his march. And on the Meredith march, Willie Ricks and Stokely get together and issue the Black Power, you know... Manifesto? Ma- yeah, manifesto <laughs> or slogan or whatever what right. you want to call it. Right. right. And so from that period on, I think you can begin to trace the issue of we're not nonviolent in that sense. Um, we're people who defend ourselves or maybe even carry guns, you know. This is after years of having been the targets of violence in the yeah, South. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, the country got off easy if you think about what has not happened in the country, you know. You said just a moment ago that, that we don't like to confront the dark side in this yes, country. The country, yes. Right. And, and it reminds me of a phrase you've used in some of your talks about the nation remembering to forget certain things. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Willfully forgetting certain things. Right, yeah. So if one wanted to, one could learn a lot about American history very easily. I mean, there are many, many resources. The last 30 to 40 years has been one great process of looking back and writing and making documentaries and so on. Right. And yet, what do you see us remembering to forget these days? Right. So, and let me just say that the civil rights movement made a big step in opening up all of that scholarship. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So um, I think um, the country really has not grappled with what it became from the very beginning with the concept both of a constitutional person in the preamble, we the people who ordain and establish, um, and constitutional property. And they haven't really come to grips with the fact that before there was a kind of states' rights party, like the Democratic Party for states' rights, which was all through the 19th century, right? And there were states' rights people, and they required that the federal government protect their property. So runaway slaves were to be brought back, not to the state, (laughs) they were to be brought back to the individual owner of the property, right? And this was written into the Constitution. Yes, article, yes. Fourth article? Yeah, well, it's Article 2, Section 4, Paragraph Oh, there we go. Right. The Fugitive Slave Clause. Right. It never mentioned slavery. They were very careful, apparently, not to mention it. Right. But they talk about property. Property. Yeah. And people who are essentially in... Service. Well, it's property that can run away. Right. Right. So it's a special kind of property. Right? <laughs> the Constitution itself, right there in the beginning, says, if such property runs away, you are legally obliged to return it to its owner. More than that, the federal government. The yes. federal government is obligated to go get it for you. Hmm. Right. So there's this, uh, let me just say it, this very, very dirty piece of... of well, here, here's the thing, though. And this is something beautiful about the Constitution, that what's there, you know, the moving finger writes, but what it has written stays there, right? So it's still there in the Constitution. And so it's there to help us remember who we were, 
if we want to really take a look at it. We can look at it and say, well, this is who we really were. We were people who had this, constitutional people, white male property owners, and who had this, right, constitutional property, right? And we were people who demanded the federal government to help us keep our property, right? Whatever we're thinking now about government, right, and how bad it is, we started off with government that could go into states, right, reach down, take a piece of property and bring it back, not to another state, but to a person who mm. owned that property, mm-hmm. right? And it took uh, the 13th and 14th Amendment to do something about that. Then the 13th Amendment also said the federal government can now go in and take your property, not the state. It can go down to the individual and take this property that you have owned and take it away from you without paying you a dime. I take it you're not what people like to call an originalist. Right. <laughs> And I'm not sure what that, you know, what I'm trying to understand. Do you know Tribe's book, The Invisible Constitution? Uh, I know of it simply through some mentions you have made of it. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. This is Lawrence Tribe. Yeah, Yeah, right. And he has six plates in there, beautifully done, his own drawings, right, with these geometric pictures, which are metaphors for what he calls the invisible constitution, right? And... So he has one which it calls the gyroscope, another which is geologic, another which is spherical, you know, global, right? And he has all these metaphors for helping people understand that the Constitution, right, that all of this is the dark, what he calls the dark matter, right? So the universe is full of all this dark Mm -hmm. matter, Mm -hmm. right? So our Constitution really is embedded in what he calls this dark matter, this things that ground, you know. You know, he's talking about one man, one vote. He says, well, there's nothing in the Constitution, right? Even though most people would say, oh, yes, this is our right, right? But it's not there in the Constitution. No, there is a lot of missing stuff that's simply alluded to. Again, slavery being one of them. Uh, There is the Fugitive Slave Clause, which isn't called that in the Constitution, and there is, of course, the mention of three-fifths of a a person person. in terms of uh, allocating legislative representatives based on not only free people but slaves uh, or three-fifths of a slave. But they don't use the word slave. They don't use any word like it. Another thing the Constitution doesn't explicitly call out is education and schools, right? Which is a you know a huge focus of yours. The idea that a quality public school education is, in some sense, a right here in the United States. Yes. How do you make that argument when the Constitution doesn't address right. it? Yes. So, <laughs> so here's what I think the argument is. The argument is that if you look at the Constitution and its evolution. One thing that strikes me is that the preamble, which identifies a class of people, because it says, we the people of the United States. So who who are these people? Well, when we start out, they're white male property owners. Mm-hmm. And we go about three quarters of a century, and it changes, right, with the 13th Amendment. And there's an expansion of those who those people are, right? It doesn't quite reach first-class 
we the people. That's what AMSI was telling me in Mississippi. I want to be a first-class citizen, right? But over the next three-quarters of a century, it expands, right? And we get to the point where not only black people, women, right? We are expanding the class of who we the people are. So my thought is that in the 21st century, we're 50 years out of the civil rights movement, right? So we're two-thirds of the way into our next three-quarters of a century. I mean, if we assume that, well, every three-quarters of a century, we kind of lurch forward, right? So in this century, I think what we should do is expand that concept to include the youth of the country around their education. They should become constitutional people for purposes of their education, right? Um, that That's a worthwhile goal, constitutional goal, and it's in line with what the country has managed to do since it started. It has managed by hook or by crook to keep expanding the class of the people who are actually entitled to what the 14th Amendment says, you know, the substantive rights, right, of a constitution of a citizen, of a constitutional person. Are you then saying that really we should have an amendment that makes that explicit? I think so. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I Wh think. What are the odds of that, do you think? Well, here's what I think about that. I think that the kids who are out there now from 10 to 40 years old, and I think of the Young People's Project, which is the spinoff of the Algebra Project. So they are out there, and they're in that age group, right? The oldest are 40, the youngest, they're reaching down to 10-year-olds, right? 30 years from now, they'll be 40 to 70, right? They'll be running the country, right? I think they should work now. What we should do, you and I, this, the adults, we should begin to have the conversations about this issue. We should decide that we are mature enough as a country to actually have real conversations about the country and this issue, and that they, 30 years from now, while they're running the country, they should put it through and get an amendment through. You know, public schools are a fairly recent invention yeah. You know, in civilization. Right. And I don't think we have absorbed the idea that that might be a right. Yes. Uh, and in fact, so much of contemporary politics is pushing against public schools. Right. Right? Beginning right. to dismantle the system. Right. Yeah. And right. the uh, market. The market. The marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Well, education obviously was hugely important in your life. We've talked about you going to Stuyvesant High School, Hamilton College, Harvard where you got your master's uh, in uh, philosophy, then got involved in the civil rights movement, and then you returned to Harvard to get your Ph.D. Is that right? Um, well, uh, yes. No, that is right. <laughs> right. No, that, that's right. Actually. Have any other questions you'd like to ask me about <laughs> no. your background? <laughs> um, back to your biography. After you left SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and... Um, for a while, even left the United States, first went to Canada, and then you went to Tanzania. Right, right. You were teaching during that time in right, Tanzania. Right. Were you teaching math at that yeah, point? Yeah, I was teaching math. So at right. what point had you become in your life, a guy who didn't major in math and hadn't thought about going into math, become a math teacher? And, and why? So actually, um, 
after in 58 my mother died right and my father lost it right and he was hospitalized and so i left graduate school came to new york and um Jones, um, blanking on his first name, who was head of the John Hay Whitney Fellowship Program, which had gotten me into Harvard. I, I went to him and asked him for a job. Um, did he know where I might find some work? And so he was friends with Dr. Gratwick, who was the headmaster of the Horace Mann School. Ah, famous preparatory school in New York. Right. And yeah. so he got me a job teaching. And I, what could I teach? Well, I could teach seventh and eighth graders math. Right? Ah. And so that's how I started teaching math. Uh-huh. Well, this is a top-notch school, fa- many famous alumni. Were you a natural at teaching math? Because I think of math teaching as about the hardest thing a teacher can do. Yeah, so I certainly <laughs> had a lot of enthusiasm, and I had a lot of um, uh, ideas about how to introduce math. None of which I would use now. <laughs> right. You did have that, that, that germ of a philosophical idea from, uh, from W.B.O. Klein. And I, yeah, and I, I didn't have that then. Oh, you didn't, I right. see. I mean, I knew about it, uh-huh. but I didn't know how to use it uh-huh. then, Right. That came much later, right? Well, at least by that point, we're talking late 50s, you'd had a taste of teaching math, and then you stepped away from it to become, again, a, an activist, and then back into teaching in Tanzania, did you teach math there too? Yeah, I just taught math. And what was that like? So that was really very different because we we had 40 kids in the classroom um, and no discipline problems and everyone is trying to learn. And the issue there is a country which needs every kid that's in its secondary school. Now, So it's a government-run secondary school. of the kids can get to what they call their elementary school. 10% of them have room. The country has room for 10% of them in its secondary schools. They're on the British system. Mm. So every kid who arrives is valued by the country, and somehow every kid knows, right, that they are valued by the country. So it's a very different look and feel from what you find in this country. And I'd like to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, today I am talking to the civil rights leader, Bob Moses. We're discussing his career working for social justice as an activist in the 1960s and as an educational reformer today. We just heard how Bob Moses spent the late 1960s and the early 1970s in Tanzania teaching math to high school-age kids. He then returned to the U.S. and went back to Harvard to get his Ph.D. in philosophy. And in 1982, he won a MacArthur Fellowship, a Genius Award. He used the funds from that award to start the Algebra Project, which we're going to talk about next. The project sprang out of some educational ideas that he developed when he was volunteering at a school his own kids were attending in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was concerned about the math instruction they were getting, and he thought he might be able to help. So you had started to step in to the school um, that your daughter was attending, and then your your son also later on. Yeah, all four of our children. All four of your children there in, in Cambridge. And start to try your hand at specifically at algebra teaching. It's specifically at the transition 
from arithmetic to algebra. Right, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You see that as a really important point to, to intervene. Yeah. Why is that? So what you have to think is that the 20th century, the standard was arithmetic. Yeah. Right? If the kids, the kids all need to be able to go to the post office and function, right? And the 21st century, the standard has been shifted to algebra and logic, right? And it's because of the computers, right? What's driving the computers is a little bit of algebra and a little bit of logic that really are driving the computer languages, right? That are driving the actual computer itself, right? And so the standard has shifted, mm -hmm. right? And so for the first time really in the history of the planet, right, the literacy requirement has shifted from just reading and writing. I mean, the reading and writing literacy was what we were facing in the in Mississippi around the right to vote because of the industrial age, right? Um, and so reading and writing literacies were required to function, right, in the industrial age democracy. So now in the information age democracy, there's another literacy on the table. It's a quantitative literacy. It doesn't have to be algebra. I mean, in France, it's geometry. But in this country, it's algebra. Ah, so, so three R's and an A, maybe. Yes. Um, and the difference between arithmetic, which deals in actual numbers, concrete numbers, and algebra, which deals in general symbols and relationships. And so there you really have to enter into a language. Uh-huh. Right? You have to enter into this language that has been devised for these mathematical concepts. Right? Uh, and so that's where Quine's insight really pays off. Quine and the whole experiential learning that happened at the turn of the 20th century with Piaget and Dewey and learning. So we've kind of married that tradition with Quine's insights, right? Um, to get the kids to have an experience that, and what's important is that they have an experience which is common, you know, you know, as common as your shoes and socks, right? That they do together, and then together work through how do we take this and turn make some math out mm -hmm. of it. But and I've focused really on the experiences which move the kids from arithmetic ways of thinking to algebraic ways of thinking. And and as you've said, that is a, a crucial transition because you see that kind of abstract symbolic reasoning as the basis of a lot of modern skills, uh, you know, necessary so, skills. So the ante has been upped in the 21st century. That is, economic arrangements now need, in addition to the reading and writing literacies, and they need those at a higher level, mm -hmm. right? There's this quantitative literacy that's also needed. If the kids don't get it, in this country, they're headed for the criminal justice system, basically. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that that transition is not only a huge conceptual leap that you're saying is necessary, but it's also a traditional place where math curricula tend to lose a lot of kids, isn't it? Yes, right. That's where you see tremendous dropout rates. Right. <laughs> That's where people right. lose their... Yeah, and so what we're saying is that, yeah. that it doesn't have to happen that uh -huh. way. I mean, what we're saying is actually you can turn that into a highway. I mean, it's looked as a roadblock, right? Right. It's looked right. as a gate, right? It, 
people chasm called, yes <laughs> yeah. the gatekeepers so right. what we're saying is we need in this country to make the investment to turn this roadblock into a highway right and get the kids charging down this highway right so but the problem is you need teachers so this country has no concept that it's going to actually invest in real teachers. I mean, it has Teach for America, which is a jobs program, right, right. for elite, right. you know, university kids, right? But it will. It has not come to grips with the fact that it has now this knowledge-based economy, and it really needs people who can teach. And it needs to invest in people who can teach, right? So that's the big struggle, and it's not out there yet. You know? well, well, tell me what the Algebra Project is doing then. We so, haven't really defined it at all. Right. So what we're doing, um, one way of thinking about it now, what we're doing, we're trying to put forward a notion, and we're at ground zero on this, right, of math cohort schools. We've been working with math cohort classes, right, for the last 10 years. So for our first 20 years, we were in middle school. We got pushed out by No Child Left Behind because the principal is saying, well, we got to do these tests. We don't oh. have any, we don't have time for all this conceptual mm. thinking, mm. right? But we had moved into high school at Lanier High School in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and I spent 10 years from 96 to 2006 at Lanier. And in 2002, we started what came to be known as our first cohort classes. We asked kids to stay with us for four years who were at the bottom and double up on their math for four years and get themselves ready to do college math for college credit. You're specifically taking kids who are at the bottom. Yes, right, yeah. These and, are largely minority kids? Yeah, well, actually, now. Right, as we speak, uh -huh. right, we, we pitched this idea to the National Science Foundation. So we got funded to take this idea out to other places. So there's an African-American class in Crenshaw High School in L.A. There's a Mexican-American class at Franklin High School in L.A. There's a white Appalachian class at El Dorado, Illinois, right hmm. close to the Kentucky border. Hmm. There's a Rust Belt class at Mansfield, Ohio, right? And then there's a class outside of Detroit in Ypsilanti. Uh, it's an experiment, right? Grab the kids who are at the bottom, ask them to double up, ask the school system to provide the resources so they can double up work with the teachers, use this material which has been developed through the National Science Foundation and these math researchers. See if you can't demonstrate that you can take the kids at the bottom, right? Work with them and get their peer culture. This is the big issue. Get their peer culture working for them, right? right? Get them to think of themselves as a cohort that has a job to do. So so this is this is where I wanted to go. You've had some years to be working on this. Obviously, you're nowhere near the grand plan of having this become maybe universal in the United States, but you've had enough time to look at what it's done for some sets of kids who right. start out educationally disadvantaged, who get this intensive uh, and innovative treatment of math, especially algebra and those kinds of skills. Has it worked? Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, we, we have our first cohort that graduated from Lanier in 2006, right? And then we had a second, two other cohorts, right? Another one at Lanier that graduated in 2010, and then one in Miami from Edison High School, which when we were there, 2006 to 2010, they were primarily in Haitian-American school, hmm. right? So you've seen that these kids have not only learned the math skills, but you've also seen that this translates into better educational and ultimately maybe job opportunities down job the line? Job opportunities, but also um, I think one of the strongest things we've seen is the kids that I started with who were middle school kids in the 80s, hit their 20s in the 90s. Some of them came into Mississippi. We were back there um, in 1995. They spent the summer. Some of them stayed for the whole year, including my sons. And they had bonded with the middle schoolers, right? They're young. They're their heroes, right? Because they had a facet that I didn't have. They were cool, right? <laughs> and so they started the Young People's Project. Right. right there in Jackson, Mississippi in 96. So they have grown that. They have hundreds of math literacy workers, both high school and college. And I think of them as really seminal in the sense that the issue of doing for math what has traditionally been done for reading and writing, that is the idea that you're going to spread literacy, mm. had to await the computer age. There was no nothing to push it. There right? had to be an economic consensus. Yes, right. So, so concretely, though, what sort of results have you seen so far? So, what we've seen is that you can take, you can actually take kids who have experienced failure in math, and use their peer culture, and get into their families. Right, you got to work with their parents, and get them to commit to to be willing to tackle this math through high school to uh, our our idea is well if when you get them at that age they have to be willing to double up on their math but you can't make them do it then what we've seen is that they can do what this country does not have this country for all its talk about achievement gaps it does not have a standard it does not have a benchmark which says that this is where the kids should be at when they leave high school. And what we're saying is where the kids should be at, what the, should be the bottom line for every kid in the country, is that when they leave high school, they should be ready to do college math. For college credit, they shouldn't be in there remediating math. I mean, this is the dirty uh, secret. So is this is this the measure that you're saying you have achieved? Yes. So right. you've gotten these kids ready for college. Ready for They're college. They're going into college programs and going right into calculus and beyond. They don't have to do calculus. Oh, okay. They can do college algebra, right? <laughs> okay. they, yeah, they don't okay. have to do calculus. Right. They, what they have to do is do college math for college credit. Uh -huh. Math can't be an obstacle to a career choice. Math is the traditional sticking point for a lot of people who might otherwise go into physics, engineering, computer science, economics, any number of quantitatively oriented exactly. sciences. Right. Uh, and a lot of people drop out because they don't have the math. So you're saying right. you're giving them the absolute foundation so they can then choose any of these paths. That's it. 
Yes, you want them. That's you want math not to be an obstacle. You want math to be a road, right? And so the question is, what has to happen in these formative years for that to happen, right? Well, you have another shot at these kids as they enter high school because of peer culture, right? So, so Bob, the question I'm sure a lot of our listeners are asking is, how do you sell math? To the kids you're talking about, when it's difficult enough to sell to kids who have really good educations, come from privileged backgrounds, how do you persuade kids to, to stick so in there? So the basic, the basic thing is they have to understand that they can do it. And so this is where Quine's insight comes in, right? Because what we have are certain experiences that all the kids do they don't think they're doing math. So that's part of the big problem, right? Um, and their question is, oh, yes, I can do that, but it's not math, <laughs> right? And, and you know, you, you were making the point that this idea of apathy was something that people were projecting onto, in the case of the civil rights activities you were involved in, poor black people. They were saying, oh, they're apathetic. That's not why they're... Right. Uh, today, people would say, not just poor black kids or Latino kids, but all American kids virtually are uninterested in subjects as tough as math. Uninterested, but for the poor black kids, they also added that they were dysfunctional. Exactly, there are stereotypes. But here's the thing. So apathy disappeared as soon as the, the the, the sharecroppers went, Right by the hundreds, right? So they couldn't be apathetic. Mm-hmm. Dysfunctionality and disinterest will disappear as soon as the kids are doing it. And you're seeing that happen? Yes. And the stereotype that is externally imposed and sometimes internalized that if you're an Asian kid, you'll be good at math. Right. If you're a black kid, you probably won't. If you're a white kid, maybe. Right. <laughs> right. Well, what do you do with that? Is that a problem? Yeah, so... um they have to see themselves doing math, and it has to be, in some sense, externally validated. So part of the external validation is um, making math public. So part of what happens in the classroom is their work is up on the walls. Part of what happens is that the classroom is open. Visitors can come in. Part of also what needs to happen is that they learn something well enough so they can talk about it to others, right? So they can talk about it to adults. You know, popular culture, when it addresses this subject, it's usually in the form of a the story of a heroic teacher who goes mm-hmm. into like an inner city classroom and, right. you know, engages the kids. Right, um, right. The most recent version of that I think I, I've seen was... Waiting for Superman. Well, there's that one, yes, yeah. indeed, yeah. And then there was The Wire... Did you ever did you oh, watch, I never the watched the wire? Well, the wire had a series of episodes about the Baltimore schools. Okay. And one of the characters, a former cop, becomes a math teacher. And he okay. goes into this inner city classroom, which is utter chaos at first, and he beats his head against the wall trying to figure out an angle. And his ultimate angle was to use gambling cuz kids would play dice and things like that and start teaching them about probabilities. And he succeeds. So this is the image that we're constantly handed, that this innovative teacher can do this kind of thing. What is the, the secret so of your So you know program? there's a Baltimore Algebra project. I didn't know that. But, yeah. but this simplified storyline that we're sometimes fed, that the teacher just needs to find that little gimmick, that trick. Yeah, it's America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But your curriculum relies on some, some clever 
tricks, doesn't it? By concretizing the problems, working with real-world examples. Yeah, but it's not clever. Okay. I, mean, I don't think of it as clever. Um, what The basic idea is that you've got to figure out an experience which is grounded in everyday experience. Right. So it's not esoteric. Right. Right. It's something they do that all the kids can relate to. And then you've got to figure out what is the piece of math that you can extract, how to mathematize, right? And you've got to get the kids into, um, you know, figuring out the language they've got to engage. So they've got to write and think and draw about the experience because you need their language because that's the platform from which you then straightjacket this language to get this conceptual language from which they can get the symbolic representation. So the symbols mean something. So you have an example in your book, uh, Radical Equations, uh, using, I think, the subway system in, right. in the Boston area? In Boston, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the red line. And, and you use that, and you mathematize and the, so, it. But yeah. the subway system, you know, in Indianola, Mississippi, became a walking trip. There's no subway oh, right, there. Right, There's right. not even a bus right. line, right? So the basic idea was they need to have a trip. Right, mm -hmm. they need to have something which looks like a trip, right? Which means, you know, you walk or do something, and there are places, right, that you can identify, which are landmark places for whatever reasons, right? And at some point, these become Cartesian coordinates. Yeah. Well, what happens is you develop a trip line. Uh huh. Right. So a trip line is, it's sort of. It's a topological mathematical thing, which means that you really are not dealing with, you know, the number system as we know it. You're dealing with the idea that this place is next to this place, which is next to this place, right? And so these are ideas that the kids can really understand, and they serve to introduce what are the underlying concepts that you need for what's called the number line, right? So it's a process, you know, um, of really figuring out, well, how do, how do we get the concepts to the kids that they need, right, to go on to the next step? Right? But, but by some fashion, you do get from these concrete places and trip lines to the X's and Y's of algebra. Yeah, well, and, you know, X's and Y's are really the pronouns of math. Right, and so the kids know about pronouns, right? But you can call they they know about them and they use them, but you can call their attention to what pronouns do he, she, it, right? So you can get them writing things. Look at these pronouns, right? What do they do? Well, they keep track, right? Mm. And they also refer to the same thing, right? Um, and so if you have several objects, right, and you have different pronouns, they're keeping track. So that's your X and Y. That's one of the main functions, right, of X and Y. And again, it's a linguistic function, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to take one of your classes. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, something you said way back uh, much earlier in our conversation stuck in my mind. And you said one thing that's remarkable about it, the United States is what hasn't happened. Right. Right. 
True. So America hasn't experienced what other countries are experiencing with terrorism. Mm. And you've got to ask yourself, well, how come? No, when you say we have it, other than 9-11, you mean? Or you well, mean, you mean domestic internal, terror? Yes, internal terrorism. Yes. I mean, you think about what the country has done, first annihilating the Native Americans and then enslaving all these Africans. And But it it somehow has um, has really avoided uh, the terrible thing of these internal, you know. And, and why do you attacks. think that is? Well, one of the things I think that's really important about the country that I appreciate, and I appreciate it more having been living outside of the country, it, it is a country in which you can struggle, right? You have to, I think, earn your struggle. You just can't struggle in any way. But it has been and hopefully continues to be a, a country in which you can actually struggle, right? for things that you think are really important. And I think perhaps that is probably the the main thing that has kept the country from experiencing what other countries have. Well, Bob, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for struggling. <laughs> yeah, I learned that. <laughs> That's really true. I mean, I thought when it, probably the deepest lesson I learned from AMZ and CC and EW was that you can live a life of struggle, that you can have a life, right? But it can be a life of struggle in this country. It has some rewards, too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's, mm. In other words, they, you know, they were men who were thriving in some sense, right? But they were also living a life of struggle, right? And so you had to see that to understand a way of doing it, right? That that's doable, right? Thank you so much. Bob Moses is founder and president of the Algebra Project, which you can learn more about at algebra.org. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and you can learn more about us at 7thAvenueProject.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. <laughs>